Welcome to Weird Studies, an arts and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martell. For more episodes or to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. This is Phil Ford. This week on Weird Studies, J.F. and I are talking about a piece of writing I've been working on called Diviner's Time. Regular listeners of Weird Studies know that these little introductions we do before most of our shows usually include a pitch for our Patreon. But in this episode, it's almost like the whole show is a Patreon pitch. Diviner's Time started out as a talk that I gave at a tuning speculation workshop. Then last year, I revised my talk for a meeting of the American Musicological Society and then posted it on the Weird Studies Patreon, where it became the topic of a lively discussion between J.F., myself, and our brilliant and unpredictable patrons. And this, in turn, kicked off a new round of revisions. So this is the first essay I've written that developed within the distributed intelligence of Patreon. Patreon sometimes seems to be nothing more than the tin cup that content creators are expectantly shaking at passers-by in hopes of getting someone to chuck a couple of dimes their way. But it can also be a collaborative medium for artistic and intellectual work. Or at least it can be if you have a community of listeners as smart, original, and engaged as ours. If you want to read Diviner's Time in its entirety, you'll have to join the Weird Studies Patreon. This episode summarizes it pretty well, so you certainly don't have to. However, for the benefit of those of you who might be on the fence about whether to invest an hour and a half of your life listening to this show, here's a quick introduction. Imagine that you ask the I Ching, what can I expect to happen this week? And you get hexagram 16, line 5, persistently ill and still does not die. You might recognize the line, perhaps you've gotten it in other readings, but you don't yet know what it means in this particular case. Days pass, you forget about it, and then you get a call from a friend who has relapsed and is back in rehab. Oh shit, that's what that meant. This is what Carl Jung called a synchronicity, which is usually defined as a meaningful coincidence, though exactly what that means is something J.F. and I hash out in what follows. There's a brilliant bit of stage business in Benjamin Britten's opera Death in Venice, Everyone that the main character meets is played by the same singer. The opera's protagonist and audience share an uncanny feeling by which signs repeat in experience, and yet whose every repetition is an unrepeatable singularity. What I am calling diviner's time is the feeling we have when synchronicities detonate in our lives and appear much as those minor characters in Death and Venice do. Same guy, different wig. There is a paradoxical play of similarity and difference. The resonance between the divined sign and its realization is exact. I mean, either they're in tune with one another or they're not. And yet, the fulfillment of an omen is always a surprise. It feels fated, yet random. This episode of Weird Studies sets up the next one, which deals with the acclaimed new Planet Weird documentary series, Hellier. Hellier chronicles an investigation into reports of goblins in Kentucky caves. I've never seen as vivid a depiction of what magical work actually feels like. 
Every time the investigators hit another synchronicity, they sound gobsmacked in a way immediately recognizable to anyone who's hung out in Diviner's time. Something weird happens, and everyone looks at one another, eyes wide, intoning, no fucking way. With a mix of incredulity and satisfied expectation, their vocal inflection hovering somewhere between holy shit and but of course. I would like to suggest that when you get that feeling, you know that you have stumbled into Diviner's time. Yeah, so I've been watching Hellier. It's making me want to become a paranormal investigator. <laughs> me too. <laughs> oh, I've thought it's, of it before. I'm like, how do you become? I know, like, because, you know, the thing is that, um, you know, I could imagine some people finding some of the episodes a little slow when they're just talking through experiences I've had. But to me, it's actually one of the most down-to-earth, concrete, like, straightforward representations of somebody being caught up in a magical process. That's exactly it. We have to do a show on it. I mean, the whole kind of paranormal blogosphere is talking about it right now. So we're, it's uh, amazing. It's it, so good. It's very um, good. And it's, it's honest. And that's what I love about it. Yeah. Um, it's not sensationalizing. It's doing it right. And it's showing you what it's like to be caught in a chain of synchronistic madness. Um, I, yeah. I've been there. And maybe we'll talk about that today because we're talking about Diviner's time. So yeah, I'd like to talk concretely about synchronicities today if we can. Yeah. Something we've talked about on the show, I'm pretty sure we have, is how the way we normally define synchronicity, a meaningful coincidence, is itself oxymoronic. It's a contradiction. I, I want to talk about that because I have a question about that. Sure, why not? Okay, so we'll just stipulate the front end that we will warm to the topic of Diviner's Time, that we'll start talking about synchronicity first. And, I, think, uh, I think that the phrase or the, the term Diviner's Time is evocative enough to be semi-understood by most people and yet mysterious enough to keep them listening. So Okay, cool. So Diviner's Time, the time of divination, the time of... The time of fate, the, the destiny. To put it in the slightly narrower terms that I define it in this paper, Joshua Ramey, who we've had on the show, wrote an excellent essay called Contingency Without Unreason. And mm -hmm. in it, he talks about how in E.E. E. Evans Pritchard's ethnography of the Gazende people, they had this concept of the second spear. So a hunter who runs down a wild beast is given the lion's share of the meat, but the hunter who finishes it off, the second spear, is owed a portion as well. And they use this term metaphorically to talk about magical causality. And so Ramey makes the point that the Azande recognize all four Aristotelian causes, but they add a fifth one, which he calls the divining cause. So an example that Evans Pritchard uses and that Ramey quotes is the one about the granary falling down. So you can say that there's a wood granary, people seek shade under it, and the problem is that the wooden supports get gradually rotted out by the action of termites. And so one day the granary collapses and it hurts a bunch of people. So 
Ramey's point is that the Azande are absolutely clear on why the thing fell down, the efficient cause, which is termites. But they are not content to say, well, that's why it fell down. They want to know why it fell down at that particular time so as to kill those or injure those particular people. So they're not just interested in asking what happens and how it happens, but they're also interested in asking what the meaning of its location and time is. And that, to Ramey, pertains to a fifth cause he calls the divining cause. And in a nutshell, my idea is that the divining cause feels like something because it pertains to that level of felt meaning. And it takes place within a temporality that likewise has a kind of a feeling to it. It has an almost somatic signature. When you're in the midst of a divinatory situation, if you've read the tarot cards or the I Ching, and it's given you some kind of portent, a sign, an omen for something to happen in the future. And then when something happens that resonates with that reading, you have a very particular feeling of inhabiting a very particular kind of time. And that's what I wanted to get at in this piece of writing. So to get back to what we were talking about at the beginning, synchronicity, you know, synchronicity is absolutely key to this because it's talking about the feeling that we get when those synchronicities go boom. Right. Because feeling is sewn into synchronicity as a concept. Synchronicity is the occurrence of an event in the world that corresponds innately, intrinsically to an internal state of my psyche. There's a subjective dimension to synchronicity you can't take out of it. And that brings us back to, the, to what you were saying about meaningful coincidence. Now, this that phrase, meaningful coincidence, I don't know what the original German is, but Meaningful coincidence comes up again and again in Jung's two key texts on synchronicity. Uh, the first is On Synchronicity, which is a, just a short little survey or um, um, overview of the concept. And then there's a more elaborate work he wrote called Synchronicity, an A-causal connecting principle. And the phrase meaningful coincidence comes up again and again. So you mentioned in your paper, and you just said it now, that to you, that the phrase meaningful coincidence is oxymoronic. Can you explain why you think it's oxymoronic? Because I don't, I don't see it that way. Well, it is from one point of view. And from another point of view, there's no problem at all. But it's a puzzling phrase, I think, if we understand coincidence the way almost everybody in the North Atlantic West does, which is as something that happens under the aspect of so-called randomness. A coincidence is defined by the coincidence, the happening together of two unrelated, unmeaning events. You know, the way we say, oh, well, that's just a coincidence. One thing I've learned is always to mistrust anybody who uses the word just in a sentence. If you say right. just, it's just this or just that, you're trying to pare something away. It was just a coincidence that the day I, shit, the day I met my wife was also the day that I broke my ankle by falling out of a tree. I don't know. Now that actually, now that I, now that I just got into that, that's a terrible example. Yeah, Cause there's no connection to. between the two, but like, let's use uh, Jung. Let's use Jung's famous example. So he's with a patient who is a very rational Cartesian type, he says, 
he's having trouble breaking through to a kind of more imaginal space with her to do the work. So she has a dream that she's given a jewel in the shape of a golden scarab, basically a beetle, a golden beetle. And as she's describing this dream, Jung hears a tapping at the window. He goes to the window. He sees that an insect's trying to get in. He opens the window. The insect flies into the room. He catches it and he looks and it's a golden beetle. And he shows her the beetle. He, He says, here's your scarab. And he says, from then on, she was totally open. So here we have a kind of clear synchronicity. We have the occasion, which is her describing the dream, and then the golden scarab appearing in the world. So you could say that's a coincidence, right? So you say that's Mm -hmm. just a coincidence. Yeah. The question is, what does just mean in that sentence? Because what I was trying to get at is that the word coincidence does not imply randomness. No, uh, on its it, own, it doesn't. It doesn't. This is very true. This is the way we we construe it, and it it shows a certain prejudice we have that I think we can kind of dig into. Maybe coincidence just means two things happening simultaneously. Yeah, it says nothing about the meaningfulness of that coincidence. Yeah. However, the fact that it's a coincidence implies that there's some kind of reason for for making them coincide. So there's always the intimation that a coincidence has some kind of meaning. Or some kind of potential meaning, or else we wouldn't speak. Like we, I don't say, "Oh, it's a coincidence that my that I'm sitting on my chair right now." Like, or it's a coincidence yeah. that Trump is playing golf while we're doing this podcast. It's just a no. You say it's a coincidence when there's an appearance of meaning. Right. That's that's the only time where you speak of coincidence. But you know? I don't think you ever hear of somebody saying, "Oh." Well, there's a coincidence, like in the sense that like there's an extraordinary thing that requires extraordinary explanation. No. When people say that's a coincidence, it's always to take the full scale of meaning implicit in a coming together of two things and to put it in a smaller frame. Exactly. But in calling it a coincidence, you're doing two things. You're calling attention to the apparent meaning and you're dismissing the meaning. Exactly. This is all part of the move of saying it's a coincidence. You're saying there's a meaning, but the meaning is not real. That's what you're yep. doing when you say it's yeah. just a coincidence. So you, yeah, you're, that's right. If you see your name etched in the, the veins of a marble slab, you can say your name is just there coincidentally, that the veins of the marble just happen to write out your name, but you can't say that your name is not in the marble. The meaning, your name, is in the event, but then it's about whether you accept the meaning as real or whether you dismiss it as, un, as insignificant. So it's a question of significance. The person who says it's just a coincidence is just the person who says that a synchronicity has no significance. And it might be very useful. In fact, I think it's essential that we apply that type of logic in the day-to-day so that we don't go, I mean, knowing people who are very close to me who have bipolar disorder and have had uh, major schizoid episodes, I can see the danger in really kind of buying the idea that there is no such thing as a coincidence, that there are no mere coincidences. Everything has meaning. Mm -hmm. It can be very dangerous. It is. But there are certain events in life that impose themselves on us by their meaning. And that's why Jung developed this idea of synchronicity. He's like, there are certain events that are so unlikely that you can't say they're just coincidence. They're, they're not just two causal chains happening to 
resonate for no reason with one another. We have to suppose or we have to entertain the possibility of some other principle at work behind such events that makes them part of the world, part of of the schema of meaning that we need to embrace if we're going to be realists, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so yeah. I mean, it comes down to the question. It's like, do you think that meaning exists in the universe only by virtue of us seeking to find meaning in the universe? If you answer yes, then you are in line with a kind of mainstream of modern Western thought. So to get back to your example of finding your name in the marble, if you actually found a piece of marble that had your initials in it, JFM, and you showed it to somebody who is committed to a kind of scientific naturalism uh, that insists a priori that meaning is a human contrivance and not a property of the universe itself. That meaning lies on the subject side and the rest of the universe is on the object side. And we're conflating these two things. We have to maintain our objectivity. We have to keep these things straight. Um, somebody who is bought in on that idea is going to look at your slab of marble and say, well, there's like wiggly lines all over the place. It's a piece of marble. You're seeing your name in the marble in the same way that I might see a face in the clouds. That's just pareidolia, though. Your right. name isn't, and you said, you know, you can say that it's not meaningful that my name's in the marble, but you can't say that my name isn't in the marble. Uh, I have a feeling there'd be a lot of people who would take issue with precisely that and say, no, no your no. name isn't really in the marble. It's only really there if somebody put it there. It's just that there's a bunch of shit happening in the swirls and patterns of a piece of marble, and you are projecting your own meaning onto that. That is true. And that's that brings up a key, uh, a central thing about synchronicity and it's what you refer to very intelligently i think in the essay as the logic of occasion mm -hmm. it's just that you can't just say i'm gonna find a piece of marble with my name in it and that'll prove to me that god is real or something like, that. <laughs> <laughs> like it's not it has to be an occasion so the moment and this is important the moment at which i see my name in the marble has to be a moment where that means something yeah. So, for instance, it might be that, um, well, there's a there's a moment in season two of Hellier, which won't spoil anything, where they see a particular name etched into the the sidewalk uh, of a small town they're investigating, and it it's an obvious synchronicity because it connects all these disparate things together, and it points at a a deeper yet still inscrutable meaning. The occasion is always key. That's, that's the difference between synchronicity and pareidolia. You can't just be looking for things and finding them and then calling synchronicity. It has to happen in a specific event. The exactly. granary has to fall at a specific time on the specific... There needs to be a story, and that's key. Yeah. However, even if I had gone through a thousand pieces of marble and found a, a certain pattern of veins that really spells out my name, like I can trace it, the skeptic could say, your name's not in the marble, but that becomes very strange thing to say when I can actually trace my name in the marble. I'm just saying that the pattern is real. The question mm -hmm. is whether it means something or not. So the person right. who would, the skeptic who would say that my name's not in the marble, what they mean isn't that my name's not in the marble physically, because I can trace it with a pencil. I can show you where mm -hmm. the name is. What he mm -hmm. means is that it doesn't mean anything that your name is in there. 
Yeah. It's a different thing. And that's, that's a simplistic example. I remember once a very strong synchronicity I had. My stepfather was trying to, he was really trying to help me kind of, um, I was starting to write. I was like 18 and he was, he was stealing my poetry and giving it to various professors at the university. I was still in high school and getting them to read my stuff in hopes that one of them would give me some advice or help me out or whatever. And I was really angry about it. But anyways, he gave my stuff to a, a visual artist who was the dean at the time of the visual arts department at the University of Ottawa. So that guy, just to be nice, because my stepdad was the legal counsel of the university. So everybody wanted to be on his good side, I guess. So the, this professor invites me to go to his office. And you can imagine how horrible this whole thing felt to me. I had to go see this guy. I never wanted to show him my poetry. It was, it was horrible. That's, so, yeah, that sounds, that sounds appalling. Yeah, it was appalling. Yeah. So it was the day of the meeting and I'm going and all of a sudden I'm going to the, and I'm like, I'm not going there. There's no way I'm going to meet this guy. So I turn around and a truck passes right in front of me with the name of the professor on it. I can't remember his name. I think it was How Zumuchel odd. or something. And it was like that. It was like a truck, like a big Mack truck with that name written on it, and it passed right in front of me. I'm like, okay, well, I guess I'm gonna go <laughs> to the meeting. So I went in, and nothing happened really. I mean, it was useful. He told me some stuff. I remember that he told me he'd made a film once called "The Silence of Statues," and that phrase has come back to me again and again: "The Silence of Statues," which is strange because now that I'm thinking about it, it connects with the name and the marble. The, 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 yeah, the silence yeah. of like the silence of statues, but the, the, that we would expect statues to speak or something. I don't know. So it's all kind of connecting now. So maybe now is the moment where it all makes sense. But so I went to the meeting and now, so the question is, well, is it just a coincidence that I saw his name at the moment where I was, de I had decided not to go meet him? Well, you can say it's a coincidence, but what you're saying, you can't tell me that the name wasn't on the truck and that that guy's name wasn't that. You know, it's like, yeah. all you can tell me is that it means nothing that that happened. You can't affect the event itself. The event announces itself by virtue of its meaningfulness. It's inherently meaningful. The skeptic can only deny that the meaning has meaning. He can't deny that there is meaning in the event. Do you understand yeah. what I'm saying? Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. I mean, the skeptic can't deny that it has meaning for you but they can deny that it has meaning kind of, you know, out there in the universe. Because again, they're always already bought in on a subject-object distinction. And you and I are talking from a frame of reference that is always already problematizing, to use a very academic word, uh, problematizing that distinction. I don't know. I don't know if that's true. I don't, you know, Bruno Latour writes that one of the things he discovered in his Anthropology of the Moderns, right? He basically devoted many, many years to looking at how, sci how scientists work. And for instance, scientists will always present the phenomena they study as though they were stripped of any type of subjective agency. Yes, yes. And the idea is that, or the, the, our common understanding is that when we describe, say, biological processes, teleologically, in terms mm -hmm. of agents interacting with one another. The stomach yeah. exists to digest food and uh, the eye or is made you, to see or with. your genes want you yeah, to exactly. reproduce successfully. 
all that stuff, which is literally inevitable in biology. You can't really communicate biological concepts without inserting this type of tele. Some people say you can, they try hard, but it's, it takes a lot of words <laughs> to say something very simple, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so our common understanding is that that type of teleological thinking is injected into the science after the fact in order to popularize it, to vulgarize it, you know, to make it fit our common construal. Whereas what Latour observed is that scientists begin with agency. When they first posit an entity, it is always an agent. And it's only afterwards when they mathematize that they strip away the agency. So that even the most hardcore scientists, in order to do science, must approach the phenomena in terms of agents interacting towards ends, interacting mm -hmm. in the name of attaining certain ends. So what I'm saying is this, the skeptic who tells me that it was a coincidence that I saw that name at that time also experiences things like that all the time, because that's how we experience the world. We experience the world through meaning, you know, even the fact that we associate a facial expression with an internal state of a per the person whose face we're looking at is a kind of weird divining because we have no direct access to that person's. We, we are reading signs and making sense of the world constantly. The schema that I presented, I'm going to a meeting with Mr. X. I decide not to go. I see Mr. X's name on a truck blocking my path. I go to see Mr. X. There's nothing in there the skeptic can deny. All they can deny is that there was some kind of meaning or purpose mm -hmm. behind the event. So he can't take the name out of the marble. He can only deny that the name has significance. That's all I really mean. So I don't think there's any way around that because the event is innately meaningful. It's like a sentence. It has a grammar. It has a syntax. You can't deny the syntax. It's like when uh, real skeptics deny the existence of consciousness. They're like, oh, so consciousness is just folk psychology. In fact, it's just neurons interacting. Well, yeah, okay, well, what does that even mean? You're just denying what's there. So it's not skeptical anymore. It becomes a kind of mysticism.
So we've been talking about how the word coincidence has already baked into it the idea that for something to be a coincidence, it can't mean something. If you say that's a coincidence, you're explicitly saying that's a thing that appears to have a certain meaning by having two things coming together in this manner, uh, but it doesn't actually have that meaning. It only appears to. And synchronicity is a term presumably was invented to some extent to get around that problem. It's certainly how people use the term. But if you keep thinking about the concept of a meaningful coincidence, or to use the term that Jung and Pauli used for it, the a-causal connecting principle, there is still in that formulation a kind of a... I won't say contradiction in the sense that it makes the term unusable or it makes it irrational to use it, but just makes it complicated because, uh, and this comes out really obviously if you're doing work in divination or if you're doing any work in magic, like if you start off and, you know, you just picked up a book of spells or something and you do one of them and fuck, it works. Amazing, right? Lots of people have had that experience. You might start off with an idea that... A causes B, just as a string of rainy days results in the grass growing and now I have to mow the lawn. Likewise, I perform a ritual to get money. That's the perennial example we keep using. Um, you know, I do a working to get some money and then several days later I get a check from a recently deceased long lost relative, I don't know, something like that. And so it's easy to sort of say, oh, well, A causes B. But as you and I have talked about on the show, it gets a lot more complicated than that. Um, your example of the large sum check, I forget which episode we talked about this in, but. Uh, well, I'll tell it just to, to be exact. We were talking and I just, I'm like, I'm going to get back into magic because I've, I've experimented with magic before with disturbing results. So I had backed away from it. But then a couple of years ago, I'm, I'm going to try a, a quick sigil. My sigil was constructed from the phrase I don't remember what the exact phrase was, but it included a large sum of money. I wanted a large sum of money. I will get a large sum of money or I receive a large sum of money. So the way it works is you write that phrase down, you take out the vowels. This is the Grant Morrison technique. I think it, it's the um, yeah. Austin the the spare, spare technique. Spare yeah. technique yeah. Took away the vowels, took away the, the, the repeated consonants. Then I had a set of letters, which I arranged in a sigil, which I then charged using some kind of meditation or visualization method, and then quickly forgot about it. And I did it well. I forgot about it. And then I get a check in the mail two days later, or was it the next day? I can't remember. And I get a check for $18. But what was weird is that on the amount line, the line where you write out the amount, uh, the words, the sum were written in large capitals, the sum, <laughs> huge. And then in huge numbers, it was like $18.69 or something like that. It so was like, like a, a yeah. pitiful sum of money written, but, however, in such a way as to comically yeah. realize the literal intent yeah. or the yeah. literal statement of intention. Which is classic. Anyways, that's that's what happened. So a certain sense of humor can be detected in such moments. Yeah, it can be. It can, but it can be a nasty, cruel sense of humor. That's the problem. Is that that, that the, is the, the thing problem. that's laughing at you when you're doing magic is not a good thing. Uh, it doesn't yeah. necessarily like you or want to preserve your finer feelings. So, yeah. um, this is one reason why I won't. Uh, for example, wealth magic won't touch the stuff because it's just sort of like, hey, I'd like a whole bunch of money. 
and then you know somebody you love dies and leaves you a lot of money. Or you get into a, a car accident and you get the insurance payout. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You don't want that smoke. No. And I remember at the time we were talking about this, and you're like, "Man, this is puzzling because you got the check. I forget exactly when you got it, but it would have been impossible for that check to have been cut after the working. It would. It, it, it had to it, be in the mail." Yeah, it had to have been in the mail by the time you did the working. So what caused what? This relatively new book by, what's his name? Eric Wergo? Yeah, yeah, I wanted to bring that up. On retrocausation. Yeah. The idea of retrocausation is possibly useful, where it's just sort of like maybe sometimes causality goes backwards, where the thing that caused this was you getting the large sum, and somehow the arrow of causality goes back in time and you do a working in such a way as to form the cause for this effect. I'm not necessarily buying in on the idea of retrocausation, but I will say that at least gives us the idea that causality is much more complicated in magic than maybe you think when you first start doing it. And after a while, I think if you keep it up, you probably just outgrow an idea of causality in the well, sense that- But that's key. That's key. I reread, uh, as I mentioned, I reread- um, Jung's writings on synchronicity last night. And what's really interesting, and I didn't remember this. I remember the concept, but I, I didn't remember how, how much he insisted on it, that he really does mean an a-causal principle. He's saying basically, quantum physics has empirically shown us that causality is a statistical truth. It's not an actual truth of the world. Quantum effects are not causal in any kind of way that we understand causality. Now, you could say it's probabilistic causation and all that, whatever. That's another question. What he's saying is that quantum physics suggests that the world is not fundamentally causal. And he doesn't mention Hume, but I think that what he's saying essentially is that quantum physics has empirically shown what Hume argued logically, that causation is not fundamental. And so if causation is not fundamental, the question is, when I do the ritual, how does it cause the effect? What Jung is getting at is like, when you're talking about things like magic or telepathy or ESP or prognostication or meaningful coincidences of every kind, he's like, you basically are outside the framework of the causal as such. Yes. And that's what's so fucked up. It's that yeah. there's a whole way of seeing, a whole way things go, which has nothing to do with causality. Yeah. And uh, one way that we tried to get at this in the past show was talking about the aesthetic image as being an a-causal thing. For instance, if I start my book with, there was an old stone house in a field, the stone house didn't pre-exist my writing it, but in writing it, I write it as old. So it's past the causes of its oldness, the moss on the rocks, the wear and tear of the house, uh, all that causal chain that leads a house to look old occurs in the moment of the house appearing in the present. So like, that's not retrocausation. It's thinking outside of causality altogether. Yeah. Yeah. So that what we got to in our correspondence, we we're talking about the large sum was that Maybe what we're doing when we're doing magic is we're creating a coincidence. So we're creating a random effect, but 
it can only be construed causally if we remain trapped or caught up in the logic of causation, which is not fundamental. There's something else going on. It's really hard to grok this stuff, but- It is. There have been moments in time where I've been very close to it and I'm I'm constantly trying to get at it. That's kind of my thing. And I feel like in, in a way it's very intuitive. Like we just know that things happen for reasons that have nothing to do with just blind causes. But at the same time, it's really hard not to all constantly retroject causation into it. Absolutely. And maybe it's okay to do that. Yeah, there's a great passage from the first book on magic that I ever read, which is Alan Chapman's Advanced Magic for Beginners, which I still think is a really cool book. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's very short. It's quite amusingly written, and it contains an awful lot of fairly deep insights about magical path. And this is over on page 124 of that book. And he has been talking about different possible ways that you can understand magic, quote unquote, works. So you could say, oh, it's the effect of spirits, you know, and so you propitiate certain spirits and you, you, know, you pay off a spirit and it'll make something happen for you. Or it might be the idea that spirits and similar forces are parts of our own minds and it's actually the unconscious that's doing these things in the world or whatever. But there's definitely more than one uh, explanation that contemporary magicians come up with for how magic works, assuming that you know you think it does. And what Chapman writes on page 124 of Advanced Magic for Beginners is, Now, the sharpest among you may have spotted a problem with the idea of accepting more than one viewpoint, and that is the common occult behavior of arbitrary cause assignment. To practice magic for a desired result is an exercise in causality. You are attempting to cause an event, and should your magic work, you take the credit as the cause of the event's manifestation. Any magician worth his or her salt will tell you that your desire will manifest as a synchronicity. Everyday events appear to lead to your result. The idea that the event is a coincidence becomes a moot point when, for the 100th right, you get your 100th coincidence. To lay the cause of the event at the feet of the chaos of the normal world is symptomatic of a person unable to assimilate the story of magic into their narrative. However, what happens when the event doesn't materialize? Or better yet, what happens when you get a series of events that all overlap? We rapidly approach a situation of convenient cause assignment, which engenders that ancient mystical phenomenon, talking crap. Um, What he's talking about is what Robert Anton Wilson means by the chapel perilous, the point where weird shit is happening around you, strange coincidences or synchronicities are popping off like fireworks and your explainer is getting overloaded. You're running out of like a a reasonable way that you can assign causes to these things. Um, Meaning mundane causes? Meaning Or magical ones for that matter. Uh, Oh yeah, that happened because I performed this ritual. This assumes that you're leading the dance, but anybody who spends any amount of time in a kind of magical space realizes that they're not leading the dance, or at least only part of the time. You mentioned Hallier earlier. I'm mm-hmm. working my way through Hallier. I haven't gotten to the second season yet, but I find it absolutely riveting, partly because I've never seen a show that so accurately depicts what it's like 
to be caught up in a kind of maelstrom of synchronicity where you feel like instead of sort of thinking like, oh, I do the following things. And as a result, certain synchronicities follow. What seems to happen is that synchronicities are themselves causative agents. Yes, that's exactly what happens. Yeah. So the hosts and creators of Hallier, Greg and Dana Newkirk, at somewhere in like the fourth or fifth episode of the first season are talking about, I think it's Greg Newkirk talking about how when you start encountering these sort of storms of synchronicity that they're trying to lead you somewhere. Mm -hmm. And so you have to kind of play ball with that. You have to figure out where it's leading you and go where it's taking you. But then when you think about that, then it's the opposite of the causality that we maybe normally assume. And it may happen that you are being led nowhere in particular or that events can be highly charged with meaning, but the meaning is itself not meaningful. If you see what I mean, yeah, uh, you can have things that seem like tremendous revelations, but they don't actually pertain to anything. It's super unreliable. Like, yeah. uh, you know, if you read accounts of psychics, people who do seances and so on, the kind of psychical phenomena that William James is writing about. And, you know, we did a episode on William James writings on psychical phenomena. And he makes a point that psychical phenomena are poised on a knife's edge between being disprovable and provable. Like, and as each year goes along, you might expect if this was a phenomenon like any of the phenomena that science normally takes as its subject, you might expect some kind of progressive accumulation of data and evidence such that we could conclusively say psychic phenomena, it's all bunk, or there's really something here. But what James says is what he did not expect was for this knife's edge poise between appearing to be real and appearing to be bullshit, that that equipoise would remain unchanged year after year. He would talk about like the kinds of things that professional psychics would come up with in seances that would be uncanny. You know, James himself had this experience with this woman, Lenora Piper, who knew things about him that nobody could know, but they weren't necessarily the most meaningful things. And yet somehow you get both in these phenomena. You, right. get trite, you get both trite shit that leads nowhere and you get moments of realization. And getting back to this odd feeling about causality, it's, it has something to do with it. Do you, do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, well, are you saying that the phenomena feels chaotic? Like part of what makes, yes. part of why it's a causal is because it's so random? Yeah. There's a moment in your in your paper where you write, and I love this, the chains of fate betray themselves in such events with an almost audible clanking. You have not escaped what the oracle foretold, no matter how much you tried to laugh it off or avoid it, and yet the exact manner by which the omen is realized is always a surprise. It feels anything but fateful, capricious rather, or whimsical, or even random. And then later on you write, Somehow meaningfulness is not the opposite of chance. Chance or contingency is necessary for something to mean anything at all. The universe is not meaningless because it is random, quite the opposite, in fact. And so yeah. there's this idea of randomness as being the locus of meaning. And this yeah. is something I think that people don't realize, but it's really easy to understand. 
if I say that something is significant, it's because it didn't need to happen. Like nobody mm -hmm. says that it's significant for one plus one to equal two, because we can see how it's logically necessary for that to be. However, for something to be significant, it means it might not have happened. So in other words, for meaning to assert itself, it needs to be contingent. It needs to be possible for it not to have been, or else it's not meaningful. It's just logic. So randomness and meaning are completely tied up. And I think part of a, our overemphasis of causality is an attempt to fit meaning into a causal box, whereas meaning is precisely what escapes the causal. So whenever it manifests, it manifests in a random way. So it might seem banal or insane or just wacky how it manifests, but it's always pointing not at a specific signification of existence. Like it's not like the psychic told James, he didn't tell him anything that changed his life. It just told him banal things about himself that no one else could know. Yeah. But at the same time, the fact that that's being said has significance because it's pointing to a reality that exceeds or transcends the causal. This is the weird thing about synchronicities. They're meaningful, but their meaning is not knowable. They're significant, but they don't significate. They, mm. they don't point to a specific thing. They just point to pointingness in general. They point yeah. to meaning in a general way. And yeah. so, yeah, like the most incredible synchronicity I've experienced in my life, uh, which it's far enough now that I can relate it. I think I may have told this story before on the show. Did I ever tell the story about the numbers on the show? No, I don't think so. Okay. You might've so, told me in person, but right. so, not on the show. When I was about 20 years old, I guess, I had a series of incredibly potent, pregnant, meaningful dreams filled with signs and symbols and texts I would write in the dreams and transcribe when I woke up. And it was like a, a, just a huge download that really kind of set me on the path. It kind of got everything started in a way, in a real way. Um, hmm. And uh, in one of these dreams, I was at the, the gates of a graveyard and written on, like engraved in the stone on the gate itself were three numbers, five, 10, six in Roman numerals. So I woke up and wrote these numbers down, obviously. And I was trying to see what, do they spell anything? What, what do I do with these numbers? And, um, and then those numbers came up again in another dream and they were linked with the symbol phi, the Greek symbol phi, which at the time I found out then uh, actually was a symbol representing the golden mean. The three numbers, five, 10, and six are the numbers of the three letters in the name of God in the Old Testament, Yahweh, uh, Yod, He, and V or whatever. Those, yeah. So five, ten, six are the, yeah, they're, they're scrambled. They're not in wow, order, but those really? are the three numbers. And I was caught in this storm of synchronicities. And so I started to look for the number in the world. Like when I see the number five, ten, six somewhere in the world, it'll be meaningful. And so a couple of years go by and I don't see the number anywhere until one day I'm going to see the film Elizabeth, you know, with uh, Kate Blanchett playing yeah. Elizabeth I. And I'm in the subway and the subways in Toronto, they each have a number that starts with five. So I knew there was a 5106 subway car when I moved to Toronto. I'm like, look, I can't wait to see that car. And then that day that car comes up, stops right in front of me, 
five, ten, six. I go into the subway car, and it happened that it was World Youth Day, which was a big, huge. The Pope was in Toronto, so the the subway was filled with pilgrims going to this World Youth Day convention thingy. So I was like, "What the fuck? Like, what are the chances that?" I find that car on the day that the, so this is one of the reasons why um, against my own will, I eventually returned to Catholicism <laughs> because I, at the time I was like, no, I refuse this. I refuse that this is the Holy ghost doing this coincidence to get me to go back to church. Fuck that. That's not true. I don't want to believe this. And uh, eventually I was like, well, maybe that is the, the, why I was being shown. Maybe God was calling me back to, to the true religion. Like, and then I'm, and now I'm back to like, the, the question is the significance of the event itself was the event. Yeah. Yeah. It was the coincidence. It connected to me on multiple levels, including my, the Catholicism that only I and my family took seriously when I was a kid. And then it connected with my dreams and connected everything together. But at the same time, if I interpret it as a signification that it's God calling me to go to church, I think I'm missing the point. You can never trust these things. That's my point, is that these synchronicities happen all the time and you can let yourself be led by them, but you can never fall into the causal trap of thinking there's some kind of answer behind them. I think that yeah. that's really dangerous. And that's when people yeah. move to Sedona and become like UFO cult leaders. It's when they settle, <laughs> they settle on one explanation for it instead of just seeing it as an aesthetic poetic thing that's constantly happening, that's constantly reminding us that there is more, always more to the world than we think. But the more itself is the absence maybe of a final principle. Yeah. Maybe the principle of synchronicity is the absence of a fundamental principle. Mm. Maybe that's what it is. And mm. That's kind of what Jung is getting at. It's just why you, if you pair Jung with Meyasu, it gets really interesting because mm. Meyasu's talking about the principle of hyper chaos as the absence of any necessary principle. Right. And that kind of, that's kind of what Jung is getting at in synchronicity. Yeah. yeah. And that's a hard thing to understand because the meaningfulness of these connections grabs you by the lapels and shakes you and compels you to take it seriously. These things announce themselves with the greatest meaningfulness and they call for an explanation and whatever that explanation is, it isn't served by saying, oh, that's just a coincidence. It's just random. Somehow there is this randomness and yet it's meaningful randomness. Right. And it's that contradiction that lies at the heart of this thing. It makes it hard to understand. So the a-causal connecting principle. Well, if there's a connection, surely that that is something that has been caused by something. But if you're saying like, no, it's a connection without a cause. It just is. I don't claim to understand it, but I'll just say it's very hard to wrap your head around. Well, by the way, oh, I'm sorry, you were going to no, say. The, but no, the, the, you write a very interesting thing in the paper about that specifically, but finish your point what's first. The thing, well, what's the thing that I wrote that you, you wanted wrote, to bring up? You wrote, there's something very odd about reality that divination makes palpable, if not exactly comprehensible, which is what you're saying now. I can't yeah. claim to understand it fully. I'm only trying to tell you what it feels like. Ramey, and here you're referring to Joshua Ramey's amazing paper that we brought up earlier. Ramey writes about, quote, the aleatory nature of intelligibility as such. 
I find it hard to say exactly what this means, but I definitely agree with them. Somehow, meaningfulness is not the opposite of chance. Chance, or contingency, is necessary for something to, to mean anything at all. The universe is not meaningless because it is random. Quite the opposite, in fact. That's nuts! But it's yeah. true. He writes the aleatory nature of intelligibility itself. Aleator mm-hmm. being a, a term that comes from the Alia, Latin. chance. Uh, for, for, it, it specifically relates to throwing the dice. Yeah. So the, the, the chance or random nature of intelligibility as such, or in other words, the randomness of meaning as such. Mm-hmm. But you can also switch it. The intelligibility of the aleatory as such. The fact that the world is a chaos but that the chaos is intelligible to us as chaos, that mm-hmm. it always has sense, that it always has more as meaning. It always produces meaning. In, in a sense, we're just kind of stuck in a dialectic uh, between randomness and uh, causation or necessity, mm-hmm. uh, contingency, necessity, randomness and purposefulness. Maybe this is what we need to transcend. Not that we need to transcend in this Hegelian, like find some new principle to replace them both, because in a sense, maybe what it's pointing us to is the um, impotence of dialectic as such, right? Dialectic mm-hmm. being the reification at the cosmic scale of causation as the ultimate, as of reason, as the ultimate explainer of everything. So maybe it's that entire thing we need to let go. It's kind of this loosening of the understanding that maybe you really understand things when you don't understand them, when you don't know what you're looking at. It's kind of a Zen way of looking at it. There's an interesting chapter in Magic Without Tears by Alistair Crowley. It's chapter 40, On Coincidence. And all of these are short chapters. They're letters that he wrote to students of his late in life. Magic Without Tears consists of explanations of the same kind of fundamental magical ideas that he had been trying to explain his whole life, but it's much more down to earth, written in a kind of friendly and colloquial style. So he's talking about coincidence. And he says at the beginning, he wants to caution his student against taking synchronicities the wrong way. So he gives an example of a couple of like insane coincidences, and and I'll just read one of them. The most famous novel of Fielding is called Tom Jones. It happened that Frater Perduraba, which is Crowley himself, was staying in a hotel in London. He telephoned a friend named Fielding at the latter's house and was answered by Mr. Fielding's secretary, who said that his employer had left the house a few minutes previously and could only be reached by telephoning a certain office in the city between 11 o'clock and a quarter past. Frater Perdurabo had an appointment at 11 o'clock with a music hall star, the place being the entrance to a theater. In order to remind himself, he made a mental note that as soon as he saw the lady, he would raise his hand and say before greeting her, remind me that I must telephone at once to Fielding. He did this, 
and she advanced towards him with the same gesture and said in the same breath, remind me that I have to telephone to Tom Jones, the name of the music hall agent employed by her. (laughs) Isn't that a great story? Yeah. Crazy. And what he writes at the end, he says, in all this, the important point for my present purpose is to show you how entirely this question of probability and coincidence is dependent on your attention. The sequence B, 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 B at roulette is most unlikely to occur. But so, in exactly the same degree, is the sequence B, R, B, R, R, B, R, or any other sequence. The one passes unnoticed. The other causes surprise, only because you have in your mind the idea of a run on black. Extend this line of thought a little and link it up with what I was saying about the magical diary. And he's a big one for keeping a magical diary where you're noting down all the weird little occurrences that happen in your life. And this can become this incredible way of like seeing the tissues of synchronicity that undergird everyday life. It's like link it up with what I was saying about the magical diary. You realize that every phenomenon soever is equally improbable and infinitely so. The universe is therefore nothing but coincidence. How could any event be more improbable than any other? Why, very simply, go back to Monty, proclaim that at table number three, black will turn up seven times running after this next spin, or of course, any other series of seven. A fortiori, coincidence is destroyed by purpose. If, wishing to enlighten you on the subject, I write this letter and post it to your address, your receipt of it is no longer coincidence. So then coincidence must be entirely both unforeseen and unintentional. In other words, absolutely senseless. But we have just proved that the universe is nothing but coincidence. It therefore is senseless. Um, this is interesting. Um, Mayasu goes into this in uh, After Finitude, which once again I'll recommend. Uh, there's a moment where he engages in a thought experiment. He's like, imagine that for the last hour, we'd been throwing a die and getting the same result. Now, knowing as we do the laws of causation that apply in the world or, or believing we know such laws, we would think that the die was loaded. But imagine then a die with millions and millions of faces, each of which is a universe with its own causal laws being thrown over and over again and always coming up with the same universe. He's like, you'd think that there's some big reason why that is. But what what he shows, and he does this in a way that I can't do here, it's very hard to grok, but when you see it, it's amazing. It's like, the only thing that makes a die with a virtual infinity of sides landing on the same side each time, unlikely, the only thing that makes that unlikely is a projection in the world in which the die is being thrown of the laws that pertain only to the particular face of the die that has come up. Right, right. So he's trying to say that the unlikeliness of the world, like for example, Leibniz has a concept of pre-established harmony. He's saying that all cause and effect, Leibniz does, all cause and effect is unnecessary. It's just that God programmed the world for it to land that way with the same randomness as its throw of the die. It just, boom, all at once, everything is causal. Gravity works by coincidence at every time, just cause, right? 
Yeah. And, um, and so that's, it's something like that, except that, of course, Leibniz puts God behind it. And Quentin, Quentin Mayasu means putting God behind it is, again, to throw, you know, intentionality or like the logic of reason outside the framework in which reason makes sense. Mm-hmm. So that's what I think Alistair Crowley maybe is getting something, is that the universe has no transcendent sense, mm-hmm. but it is innately sense-making constantly yeah. making sense through coincidence. Yeah. And so, um, uh, yeah, so maybe something like that. I don't know. This is so hard to think though, because the idea of sense making in our minds almost invariably assumes a sense maker, right? Yeah. Intentionality. And this is a problem that you have if you engage in divination. If you spend any amount of time reading the I Ching, you become so familiar with this eerie sense that there's an intelligence that's looking at you and addressing you, that these meanings, the synchronicities between, you know, the thing you read in the I Ching and then the thing that happens in real life, you get so used to that, yeah. that uh, you can't help but feel addressed in some way. And you mentioned this too, in that same passage that you quoted in our correspondence. It's just, all I meant was that Every synchronicity gives us the sense that we're being addressed. That's kind of the feeling you're getting at in your paper too. The feeling is the feeling of being addressed. Yeah. Right? But then, you know, you're like, okay, so if this book has a consciousness, like, where is it? I'm not even going to say like, where does it keep its brain? Right? That would be an excessively physicalist way of thinking about it. But like, what consciousness is this anyway? Is it a consciousness that has any kind of spatio-temporal coordinates? Does it exist in some places and not others? You know, you can never answer any of those kinds of questions. And so you're just sort of stuck with this sort of sense of like, yeah, there's an intelligence somehow that is intending these things. But it's possible that there's no intelligence intending these things, that these things happen. They are meaningful. They're unintended. But then we find ourselves sort of tripping backwards into that scientific naturalist way of thinking where it's just a coincidence. Yeah, you end up back there. Where all the meaning that's to be had and that is simply a projection on your part to a situation in the universe that is utterly indifferent to what you think and who you are. Exactly. So it comes to a point where you need to make a choice. Crowley, it seems, and Mayasu decide ultimately that everything is fundamentally chaos. Thomas Aquinas sees the same things, but sees the apparent purposefulness of the universe as reflecting a deeper purposefulness that is not necessarily rational, that transcends reason, which is God. And he calls it God. He says that everything is ultimately has meaning. In the end, if you have to choose between, let's say, order in that sense, not in the fascist sense, but order in the the, the divine sense mm-hmm. or chaos. These are just fancy ways of saying yes or no, I find. Mm. Are you going to say yes to life or are you going to say no to life? I choose to say yes, which is why I believe in God. At some point- it's But which the, one is which? Yes is God, order. Yeah, but is it order or chaos? It is order. Order. Okay. Yeah. But it's not order. <laughs> it's, this is the, the book I'm writing. It gets into this. Uh, it's, it's beyond order and chaos. It's almost like, um, 
instead of hyper chaos, we could say like something like hyper telos, hyper telos, mm. which is uh, the the condition of everything meaning something, the condition by which everything necessarily means something, is not in itself one other meaning, but the divinity of the world itself, mm. the divineness of the world itself. Mm. The 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 it is the commandment that is put to us to say yes to the world. And um, so ultimately, I think it's a temperamental thing, how you choose to call that ultimate absence of reason, whether you choose to call it God or chaos, this kind of depends on how you want to live your life. It's an ethical decision. We're all called to make that decision for ourselves. Let's try to distill exactly what you mean by diviner's time. Because what's interesting about that nomenclature that you chose for it is that it has an agent in it. It's got a diviner in it. So mm -hmm. who's the diviner? How is that? does the time pertain to him or her? Well, it almost belongs to diviners the way housemaid's knee belongs to housemaids. You know what I mean? Almost right. in the sense of being like an occupational hazard or a, a byproduct. Okay. If you are doing a lot of divination, your relationship to time becomes different. You start experiencing time in a certain way. It's a time structured by synchronicities. Um, but I also like using the word resonance, and I use resonance more often in this essay, partly because it helps get at the odd sense of causality mm -hmm. or pseudo-causality that obtains with these events, that if you walk into a bathroom and you're humming to yourself, and then there's a certain note that really rings, it's not because you caused that to happen because you just opened up your chest on that one note. And the room isn't exactly making that happen. You needed to be there for that to happen, right? What has to happen is that your voice has to hit the resonating point of the room. Different rooms have different pitches that they will resonate in sympathy with. So that's what happens when you sing a note in a bathroom and one note particularly really stands out, really rings. It's that you found the resonating point of that room. And when your voice resonates in this way, what happens is something that's a result of all of the things, the shape of the room and you singing that particular thing there at that particular moment, blah, blah, blah. Uh, what you have is two things aligning because of the shape of the situation. It's not straight line causality. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, it's various causal series connecting. Yeah. The question is, right. what creates the connecting? What causes the connection of these causal yes. series? That's exactly. the question. Yeah. Exactly. And that's the diviner's cause is the thing that seeks to answer that question. Why did that happen at that particular time, right? Right, right. Um, and so what I mean by diviner's time is a feeling of time as structured by those moments of conjunction. A kind of music... Yes. Uh, you, you compare it to music. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I'm trying to find a good passage to read. Time organized by the divining cause, I will call diviner's time. 
It is a peculiar temporality in which the sign, laden with dread or effulgent with promise, announces itself in experience. Diviner's time is structured by repetition. An act of divination gives us something to happen in the future, and then something happens in our experience to manifest that sign. The repetition between these two occurrences is exact. The omen and its realization chime together in perfect resonance, and yet paradoxically they are always varied and in ways that cannot be predicted. And I say in a divinatory result, there's a feeling of inevitability, a promise kept or a doom one has not managed to escape, in fact, could never have managed to escape, and yet we are always surprised somehow. Thus, for the diviner, the repetition of a sign in experience is always unexpected, and yet, in the moment of its happening, feels foreordained and inescapable. One thing I'll say about the whole idea of this being diviner's time as opposed to someone else's time is, again, think of it as being sort of like you know, housemaid's elbow or something. It's something that befalls diviners as something of a occupational hazard or perk, depending on your point of view. Um, but it's something that can happen to anybody. I mean, you can get bursitis, whether you're up to your elbows in, in uh, soapy water every day, scrubbing pans, or you can get it because you're practicing the violin too much or whatever. Uh, the point is, however, that divination is the kind of thing like being a housemaid, that makes you particularly prone for this to happen. And so when I well, talk- Well, it's not divination if it doesn't happen. Yeah. You know, someone asked a question when I presented this at the AMS, do you have to engage in divination for this to be a human experience? Because if you do, then you're limiting the scope and the potential value of this concept to something that only happens when people are engaged in this particular esoteric kind of behavior. I said, no, it's a little bit like something that like Zen teachers say about awakening, that awakening is an accident, but meditation makes you accident prone. And so right. like, actually it's in meditation that the non-causal relationship between effort and results becomes really obvious. Like if you decide, I'm going to, I'm going to awaken in this very lifetime and you're going to be like really hardcore about it, then your application of effort can just as easily end up leading you nowhere as it can lead you to where you want to go. One thing that becomes clearer and clearer with practice is that those kinds of things don't happen because you worked really super hard. They just happen. But that kind of shit is much more likely to happen. You're putting yourself in the way of things happening right? if you get your ass on the cushion. And I feel the same way about divination. Diviner's time relates to something that people experience all the time, especially around the most traumatic or emotional experiences of their life. Uh, I've had a number of friends tell me about weird synchronicities that have happened around the death of a loved one. Um, yeah. You know, one friend of mine who lost his mother and was deeply shaken and grief stricken by this event, he was processing this and he was at a rest stop in Pennsylvania or something. And he saw a woman who looked uncannily like his mother and he was sort of staring at her. And then she weirdly started walking towards him, came over him and said, excuse me, but you look an awful lot like my son and then wow. walked away. Well, that, that seems to me like an apparition. Yeah. Yeah. Well, who yeah. the fuck knows what it is. Right. And my point with something like that is that things like that can just organically happen to people like my friend who has zero interest in all of this shit. Um, 
it can happen to you at moments where you're really wide open anyway, but like doing something like a practice of divination is something that's just what you're doing is you're trying to make those things happen. And again, because causality is not on a straight line, it's real tricky. What you're really doing is just trying to create an environment within which those things can manifest. Okay. Well, in, in that case, the, the connection between diviner's time and Kairos is clear. It's just the diviner's time is the the affective mode in which one enters to experience kairos. Mm -hmm. um, or you could put it that way, or it's kind of like... Well, um, let's stop and, and, and say, for the benefit of our listeners, what kairos is and why we would think of diviner's time and kairos as being closely related in this way. So kairos, for the Greeks, uh, is one of the, the two main words they had for time, the other one being chronos. Chronos is sequential moment-to-moment -moment clock time. Kairos is, as you said earlier, timing, the right time for something to happen. Yeah. The word kairos in, in Greek also meant weather, which means the time as it pertains to us now, the time as it manifests for us now, as in, in the sense of the propitiousness of the time. So Christ comes at the kairos, at, at the historical, at the right time at for him At the appointed to, moment. At the appointed moment. Um, the right moment for maximal impact, let's say. Mm -hmm. um, so that's the idea of Kairos. So Kairos inevitably contains in itself, conceptually, the sense of an internal psychic state, a state of expectancy, a subjective state, aligning with a world that provides the occasions for the manifestation of what the subjective state is wanting to happen. So even in mundane examples, we were saying like the right moment to leave a party is a tiny little moment of Kairos, right? It's like there's a yeah. right time to leave the party without being noticed. But what brings this right time about is a series of weird events, like the people suddenly disappear around you and there's a, there's a clear way to the door and the guy you were talking to got called away. And all of a sudden it's the Kairos. It's the right time to leave the party. Yeah. Yeah. A mundane example, but it required a kind of conspiracy of your expectation, your subjective state, and the world itself. The world had to provide the occasion. That's what the Greeks mean by kairos. And in, in, in a sense, I mean, every divination, every divinatory act is a little event you create at the table when you're doing your divination that will connect with an external event that's either going on now or going on later in time. And so it, it pertains to this idea of an alignment of the subjective and the objective, an alignment yeah. of the self and the world. That's right. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Ultimately, that's what's at stake is the feeling of that boundary between subject and object being eroded or seeming somehow beside the point that the world is not some indifferent matter against which the self is opposed, but you are a part of the world. Like there's nothing like divination for making you feel in a practical everyday sense that you yeah. are a part of this world. But I sort of said, well, you know, it seems to me that diviner's time is as much an aesthetic concept as it is a phenomenological or epistemological or existential one. It's, it's not just a term for things happening in the world and happening in our lives. It's also a term for things happening in art. It pertains to both things equally. It is the expression of an aesthetic universe. 
and it expresses something. And what it expresses is a kind of eldritch mood, a, a spooky, a weird mood. And, you know, what's the feeling when you sneak out of a, a boring party? I always think of a moment in the Richard Lester film, A Hard Day's Night, that really funny movie with the Beatles from 1964, where they're in a boring press junket and they manage to sneak out outside. And when they finally get away, they're like, we're out. Can't buy yeah. me love. Yeah. You know, and, then, and then you have you hear the song. Oh, mate, lads, first of all, and no messing about. Leonard, put them girls down or I'll tell your mother of you. And stop messing about. Stay in here until that rehearsal. And I'm going to keep you in, even after I put the lock in the key and turn it. We're out! Can't buy me love. Like, that's always the mood, the expression of such moments for me. Or, you know, an example I use in my paper, predictably for me, one of my graduate students suggested that this paper was like a Phil Ford bingo card. Like, all of my pet obsessions appear. Boxing, Twin Peaks, Wagner's Parsifal. Anyway. Right. Um, so I use a boxing analogy. Like, I say, you know, the fact that somebody was knocked out at 2.37 of the second round, that's the business of chronos, clock time, how we measure time. But the fact that this knockout happens to punctuate a long rivalry and is the, the culmination of this whole thing where, you know, this guy's revenging an earlier loss, blah, blah, blah. That's the business of Kairos. That too has its own particular expression or emotion. Yeah. But I'm talking about, okay, so like one thing you could do in a practice of divination that you don't do when you're just sort of like walking about the world and encountering strange shit at certain times in your life, like my friend encountering that woman in that rest stop, is that you're orchestrating time in a certain way. Something that I say throughout this paper is that diviner's time makes of life a kind of music, that we have cadences and resolutions and dissonances and counterpoints and all of these terms that we use to describe the abstract goings on in a piece of music. The way that music hits us at the deepest, most direct effective level. And at the same time, it's all very abstract sort of saying, you know, what it is that's affecting us. Well, diviner's time does that too. It has the same sense of these abstract movements that nevertheless affect us very strongly. But what you're doing in diviner's time is becoming aware of how you are part of a composition. You know, there's a music to our doings and the realization that you're a part of that music or that you are that music, that's a kind of subject, object, figure, ground reversal that is eerie. It's weird. It's uncanny, even in the Freudian sense. And, you know, Freud talking about the uncanny as, you know, that which behaves as if it's alive when it shouldn't, you know, like a, a doll that looks creepily lifelike. And likewise, it's like, you know, you're living in a matrix that you feel should be dead, just, you know, insensate matter, and it reveals itself to be alive. That's an uncanny feeling. But it's, it's uncanny for moderns, but isn't it just the de facto mode of most human cultures and civilizations that a religiosity in which there's a kind of music or story to the universe that we're part of a story. Yeah, but don't you feel that, that what is that, Fascinanza Tremendum? What is that line again? Yeah, Fascinanza Tremendum from uh, Rudolf Otto. Otto. Rudolf yeah. Otto. He's not just talking about like 
moderns being blackjacked by all the shit that we whistle past the graveyard on, all the stuff we try to pretend isn't there when it is. I think he's talking about something that's as close to a trans-historical absolute as exists. That feeling of awe before the incomprehensibility, right, the mystery. Right. No, I get and it's it. that and, and it's that sort of that feeling of reversal, like, oh shit, I'm the story. That to me carries with it a specific charge. And that's what I'm trying to get at in this concept of a diviner's time. Right. So diviner's time is the sense that there is a a music to it all. That there's yeah. a yeah. There's a line from the New Testament, Ephesians. So the line is the administration of the fullness of time to bring together all things in Christ, the things in the heavens and the things upon the earth. The fullness of time, if you want to be literal, is the fullness of the times. In Greek is pleromatos ton kairon. The pleroma, the, the point at which all the different kairoses unite mm-hmm. in a kind yeah. of like overarching symphonic Yes. Meaningful, cosmic, boom, you know? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And diviner's time, every little coincidence or every little uh, synchronicity or resonance that you experience divining, uh, no matter how banal, is pointing us to this underlying music, is, is pointing us to this, I don't know whether to call it overarching or underlying music or symphonic Mm-hmm. Unity, and that's exactly what I was yeah. getting at earlier. Is that in the end you can say it's all chaos or it's all meaning. Yeah, but you got to yeah. say one. Or, it's an either or thing in the end. Either mm-hmm. or, you know, <laughs> you can't say it's both. Either it all means something, or it doesn't. Although, aren't we saying it's both? Like the whole, all of that stuff we were saying earlier about how the, you know, the universe is not meaningless because it's random. Quite the opposite. That, in fact, there's a weird interpenetration of meaningfulness and randomness. Of course, both things exist. But in a sense, either it's music or it's not. Mm. I just don't see how you could have it both ways. Either there is a music to the universe. And that's just a way of saying there's some kind of implicit order, even if it's, it's an order that we can't fully comprehend. Or there isn't a music to the universe. Yeah. I mean, you got to pick, you know, (laughs) it's like you can't say there is music and there is no music. Now, I want to return to that quotation from Ephesians. I thought that was really interesting. The fullness of time. That sounds a lot like what I understand Ion, the third of those three Greek conceptions of time. So we have Kronos, which is clock time. We have Kairos, which we spend a certain amount of time talking about. And then there's Ion, which... My understanding is that that is the fullness of time. That's right. As you put it in our email exchange, it's like the CDs of Parsifal sitting on the shelf waiting to be played. It's the potentiality of time. Yeah. But the Gnostic currents that contributed to Ephesians, because Paul was influenced by Gnostic ways of thinking, he uses the word pleromatos, the pleroma of time. Uh, And uh, the pleroma is a term from Gnosticism. It means the fullness. It means fullness in Greek. Mm-hmm. And yeah. uh, aeon is a more pagan construal. Like, I don't know. I'm, I'm no expert, obviously. But uh, my understanding is that aeon is a static circle, like a yeah. zodiac. Like the in zodiac, which yeah. Everything happens. And what happens with Gnosticism and Christianity and Neoplatonism is that all these things become 
in history. Like there's, it's not about mm-hmm. uh, a static fullness that we contemplate, but a fullness that is manifesting itself in time. It's an imminentizing of ion. Exactly, an imminentizing of ion. That's a perfect way of saying it. Mm. And, and that contains great promise because it promises a new world, but it also contains a great danger as uh, Eric Vogelin that I've been reading recently exhaustively kind of explored because it creates the possibility of the modern, the idea that we can imminentize the eschaton, yes. the way yes. that we can create the new world with our own brains. And um, so that would be the difference between Ion and, and fullness of time in the sense that's used in Ephesians, as I understand it. But it's interesting to me because this fullness of time, what do I say? I take Ion to be what Mircho Eliadic means by Illud Tempus and what Charles Taylor in A Secular Age means by the higher times, mythic time that we can realize through ritual. So maybe there is connection to this fundamental modernist hubristic idea that we can imminentize the eschaton, um, the uh, imminentizing of that which lies outside of time. Uh, But at the same time, this is not a new idea. There's this idea, there's an age of heroes, the time where gods walked amongst men. It's a time when magicians had true power. It's a time uh, where myth was real. And the thing about that time is that that's not time that exists historically in a line from our time. You can't just sort of say, oh yeah, that's, that happened uh, 3,000 years ago. Well, the ancients, no. the ancients thought it did. They thought it was historical. They thought that it did come before. Yeah, but like history doesn't mean the same thing to us as it does to the people you're talking about. No, because they were living in a kind of mythologi- mythological yeah, universe. Exa- yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, but certainly if we want to talk about Christianity... Uh, the idea of bringing back the time of heroes, the time of the ancestors. Can you visit that time? Uh, yes, you can, but through ritual, you can instantiate that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's something similar going on in divination where, you know, we're talking about a kind of pleroma time, a storehouse time that exists outside of any kind of linear time something that seems to be definitionally not experienceable. And yet it becomes experienceable or palpable in these strange kind of rhymes and resonances and cadences of diviner's time. It's a practice that can kind of realize another time in this time. Yes. And so there's a connection, I think, between Diviner's time and Ion just as much as there is to Kairos. And so that's something I haven't figured out or theorized really yet, is just how Diviner's time relates to both those concepts. In different ways, it relies on all three. I mean, like, you can't have a real satisfying detonation of Diviner's time without the feeling of it happening as a counterpoint to clock time, to Kronos. Mm Mm-hmm. It's not identical with any other of these faculties of time. It involves them symphonically somehow in a way that I can't quite Right. Well, it, it feels to me like a way of, of talking about how they can enter into relation with one another more than a fourth type of time. So it's a way of like conceiving of how one can engage with this symphonic multiplicity of times. I don't know. It's it's really interesting. <laughs> um, 
and I like what you said there because the difference between the, you know there's immanentizing the eschaton, which is a term from the, the work of Eric Vogelin. I, I just devoured a couple of his books last week. He's freaking amazing. He says that basically modernity is a kind of Gnosticism. It grew out of a medieval heresy that became the kind of most promising way forward for medievals. And um, the goal of modern Gnosticism is to immanentize the eschaton, to take the eschaton, which traditional pistic cultures or cultures rooted in faith were asked to just expect at any time, like a thief in the mm-hmm. night, you just wait for the time, the fullness of time to arrive. You mm-hmm. instead, you internalize the entire logic of the mythology and you see the human itself as the source of the eschaton, as that which will bring about the new world. One of the first people to formalize this type of thinking was uh, Joaquim de Flora, who was um, a mystic, a Christian mystic, a monk, who wrote of the three ages, like the old three-age structure. He Mm -hmm. revives it, but he puts one in the future. So basically he says there was the age of God, the age of the Father, which was the Old Testament age, the age of the Son, which is the New Testament age, so the, the medieval times. And then now is com- what's coming is the age of the Holy Spirit, in which Christ becomes the human. The Holy Spirit, by which humans participate in the divine, becomes the operating force that will create a perfect world on earth. And you can see that basic instinct at work in all the modern ideologies, including communism, of course, and Nazism, and and even the republicanism of the French and the Americans and Mm -hmm. all that. Mm -hmm. So, but you can also switch it and say that divination is kind of a way of doing the opposite. You're not immanentizing the eschaton. You're not immanentizing the transcendent. You're transcendent, you're transcendentalizing the imminent so that the imminent world becomes already the perfect world. Already yeah. the musical, the music. And I think that's much closer to a more traditional Christian approach than it would be to the modern Gnostic approach, mm, if we want to call it that. Yeah, that, that's, that feels satisfying. And, and divination right. comes from those religious cultures. I mean, the I Ching yeah. comes from the Chinese cosmological vision and the tarot comes from Christ, medieval Christianity. And so these things belong to that religious pre-modern world. And... Um, and what's interesting when you read Vogelin is that <laughs> he agrees, he would agree with Bruno Latour when uh, Latour says that we've never been moderns because he locates the entire structure of modern thinking in a particular pre-modern way of thinking. It's just basically the privileging of one mode of thinking, which is just as pre-modern, quote unquote, as anything else. It's just one way of seeing, of seeing the world. We're basically still in the Middle Ages, according to Vogelin. And so that would negate any attempt to kind of say that the time of the I Ching and the Tarot has passed. Somehow that yes. way of thinking is not valid anymore. We're still yeah. in the same mystery. Consider subscribing to Weird Studies on iTunes, Stitcher, or another podcast service. You can also follow us on Twitter or support us on Patreon. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel. Thank you for listening.